June 2023. Welcome to Muse News, the BCMA's monthly museum sector news podcast. Each month, we recap some of the latest breaking news, happenings, and announcements from museums, galleries, and heritage organizations across BC and beyond. I'm Leah Patterson, joined by returning guest anchor Lorenda Calvert. I'm delighted to be filling in today for Ryan Hunt on Muse News. Join us as we explore the latest Muse News. Over to you, Lorenda. Thanks, Leah. Britannia Mine Museum is bringing back Old Town, New Queens, a Pride Night event for the second consecutive year. On June 16th from 6 p.m. to 9.30 p.m., the museum's Mill No. 3 building transformed into a huge performance space to feature several LGBTQ2 plus drag artists from the region, according to a news release. The event is in collaboration with the local nonprofit Pride Squamish. Their gang manager of interpretation at the museum says, As we celebrate our Mill Number no. 3 centennial this year, we wanted to not only pay homage to its history and heritage, but also to create a unique collaborative event that makes space for the LGBTQ2 community. First Pride Night in 2022 saw over 200 guests in total. This year's lineup includes Sativa the Diva, Homo Hardware, Dus Quain, Belladonna Von Shade, Flemme Fatale, Pia Little, Dolly Hardon, Blue Joy, and Maiden Wonderland. The first time I walked in and saw the sheer raw beauty of the mill, I knew we were doing something incredible, said performer Sativa the Diva. To be able to perform at such an iconic landmark is a moment I will never forget. The show was hosted on June 13th and included two 45-minute drag performances that also allowed access to the museum's newest exhibit, 100 Years of Mill Number no. 3. Pride Squamish board member Trevor Wolf said, Partnerships like this help Pride Squamish continue to do the work we do, creating awareness, visibility, inclusion, and safe spaces for all. Tumblr Ridge Museum volunteer archivist Chris White was recognized for her dedication to preserving local history as part of BC Museums Week 2023, held every year from May 14th to 20th. An article recognizing White's archival work was featured on the BC Museums Association website earlier last month. Detailing her time as a board member of the Tumblr Ridge Museum Foundation, White lived in Tumblr Ridge since 2001, moving from Victoria to enjoy both the scenery and affordable cost of living. I've been a member of the museum since the beginning. I've been on and off the board numerous times. They needed an archivist, and I said that I was interested in taking charge of that, said White. I know I'm called an archivist, but it's really just collections, documenting and itemizing, and putting everything in order. After taking a week-long archival course in Calgary, White began volunteering her time two days a week, archiving everything from old newspapers to a large number of photographs and various documents related to the town's social clubs, mining industry, and pre-industry history. The work has always been about a passion for details, said White. It's really fascinating because it's Tumblr Ridge before its inception. All the studies for coal mining, and then all the first, the first babies born, first this, first that, the beginnings of the town and some of the pioneers of the town before it was a town, said White. White added that the museum would greatly benefit from future archival work to better adhere to Canadian archival principles. Many of the materials first sorted by White took over a year to be properly placed. It was in garbage bags and shoe boxes. It was hither, thither, and yawn all over town, said White. And so I sort of started just with the coal and then the photos and went from there. 
Templar Ridge Museum Foundation Executive Director Zena Conlon says White has been an integral part of the museum. She's been absolutely integral in keeping the archives going here. She's one of our superstar volunteers in Conlon. Over to you, Leah. Thank you, Lorenda. BC First Nation buys back 140-year-old robe, paying almost $40,000 to bring it home. The intricately woven Chilkat robe, made of mountain goat wool and yellow cedar bark, was purchased by the Taku River Tlingit First Nation in northwestern BC for almost $40,000 after it went up for sale online by Toronto-based Auction House last year. The robe arrived in Whitehorse Wednesday and will travel 175 kilometers south to the First Nations territory in Atlin, BC, where it's expected to go on display and may be used in future ceremonies. While the community celebrates the return of the peace to its heritage, the First Nations said Indigenous peoples should not be forced to buy back regalia that was stolen from them. It's calling on the federal government to take action to prevent similar situations in the future. Tlingit elder and master carver Wayne Carlick said looking at the robe and understanding the history it represents makes him emotional. Carlick, an artist and residential school survivor, said getting the robe back is a chance for the younger generation to see art in a way he couldn't at their age, and to learn about the nation's history and resilience. It was late last year when a friend of Carlick's first spotted the robe up for auction and sent him to the online link. Carlick said he's seen many similar items, but this was the first one he's come across with wolves, an animal common in the Taku River Tlingit culture. Carlick's friend, an Atlan local named Peter Wright, agreed to step in and bid for the robe, with the understanding that the First Nation would pay him back. The Taku River Tlingit said in a statement in December that the piece was originally expected to sell for an estimated fifteen to $20,000, but came in at a staggering $38,000. It's unclear how the item came to be part of a private collection in Ontario. The First Nations spokesperson said in a statement Wednesday that they're overjoyed that the piece of their heritage is coming home. This long-awaited homecoming fills our hearts with happiness and strengthens our spiritual connection to our ancestors. However, we must acknowledge that repairing our First Nation relationships with the federal government is equally crucial, the statement said. It is unacceptable that any First Nation should have to purchase their stolen property back, and we urge the government to take responsibility for this issue. In accordance with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the government must prioritize truth and reconciliation efforts, including addressing these types of injustices. The First Nation has said that there are currently hundreds of pieces of Tlingit art in distant museums and private collections, meaning community members rarely have opportunities to see them. Ben Lauder, a heritage archaeologist with the Taku River Tlingit, said that a special display case for the robe is being built by experts in New York, and it will be installed at the First Nation government's office in Atlin. The glass protects the delicate fibers from UV rays, and the case is humidity controlled. An official repatriation ceremony is scheduled for July as part of a three-day event involving all Canadian inland Tlingit communities. BC's last Martin Mars water bomber could be headed to Victoria Museum. The last airworthy Martin Mars water bomber is headed to the BC Aviation Museum in Sydney. The Hawaii Mars, owned by Port Alberni-based Colson Groups of Companies, hasn't been used to fight wildfires since 2015 and has been sitting idle at the company's Sprout Lake Air Base since its retirement eight years ago. Discussions between the Aviation Museum and the company president, Wayne Colson, about bringing the massive aircraft to Sydney have been going on for more than a year. 
The sides are now trying to determine the costs and logistics to get the bomber to the museum's site at Victoria International Airport. Only seven were ever made by the California-based Glenn L. Martin Company, all for the U.S. Navy as ocean patrol and long-range transport during the Second World War. Most were used for naval cargo on the San Francisco-Honolulu route until 1956. The last four, sold as scrap, were bought by a BC forestry consortium and later converted to water bombers. One Mars crashed while firefighting in Northwest Bay, near Nanus Bay, in 1961 with the loss of four crew, and another was critically damaged in the storm. The remaining two Martin Mars bombers were acquired by the Coulson Group in 2007 from Timber West and its subsidiary, Forest Industrial Flying Tankers. The Philippine Mars, painted blue and white, was retired in 2012 and isn't considered airworthy. The red and white Hawaii Mars had its last fire season in BC in 2015 when it secured a 30-day contract with the province. Colson wasn't immediately available for interview, but the company said on its website that the organization is working with the local museum to have this iconic aircraft proudly displayed in British Columbia. The Aviation Museum plans to make the Martin Mars a centerpiece of its collection of the BC Wildfire aircraft, which already contains an A-26 Douglas Invader and a Convair 580. The Mars would be the first firefighting water scooper for the museum, but getting it there presents several costly hurdles. Nickel and Coulson would have to put engines on it again, get a crew back, and acquire a temporary flying certificate. The aircraft would have to have several checks to be prepared to fly again, and would have to use an older-style aviation gas. It would then have to be flown to Patricia Bay and hoisted onto a barge. Nichols said changes would have to be made to some of the docks and infrastructure at the Coast Guard base at Patricia Bay to barge the big plane to land, where it would then have to be fitted with dollies to be rolled out of the ocean and across the West Sandwich Road and Victoria International Airport property to the museum. The Martin Mars bombers are water planes and they have no landing gear. That's a lot that has to happen, said Nickel, estimating it would cost about $500,000 just to get the aircraft from Sprout Lake to Sydney. Nickel said the museum isn't in a position to pay much or anything for the Martin Mars. The museum does not receive any federal or provincial government funding and is a volunteer-based nonprofit that relies on donations, fundraising, and gate proceeds to finance its aircraft restoration projects, including a Second World War Lancaster bomber. We've got lots of projects and not a lot of money, said Nickel. As much as we want to preserve the Martin Mars, we can't bankrupt our museum to get this. Ideally, Nickel hopes that some sort of deal can be worked out to have the plane by October, or it may have to wait another year if the ground at the airport is too soft to ferry the giant plane. Back to you, Lorenda. The British Museum says it has removed a Canadian translator's work from its exhibition after using the translations without permission, attribution, or compensation. The museum says Yi Lin Wang's translations of poems by 19th century revolutionary Zhu Jin were displayed in the China's Hidden Century exhibition, as well as its brochures, though it says the catalogue acknowledges her work. The Institute says it has apologized and offered to pay Yi Lin Wang for the time her translations were displayed. The British Museum says unintentional human error led to the slight. On Twitter, Wang says her translations are labor-intensive pursuits and her work should be properly acknowledged. The British Columbia-based writer says she's still in communication with the museum. 
This has been an incredibly and needlessly frustrating experience after experiencing copyright infringement, Wang tweeted. I urge the British Museum to actually engage with me in good faith to show that they are truly apologetic. Otherwise, I do not and cannot accept their apology. BC Indigenous Artists Collecting Sounds Across Canada for Virtual Witness Blanket Carrie Newman, a Kwakwakwak and Coast Salish Indigenous artist known for his world-renowned Witness Blanket, is launching a nationwide appeal for audio submissions from the cultures that were targeted by residential schools. At the University of Victoria, Newman, who is the Impact Chair in Indigenous Art Practices, collaborates with Kurt McNally, an Associate Professor of Music Technology, and a group of Indigenous musicians. Together, they're creating a soundtrack of resilience for a virtual reality witness blanket. Newman began work on the original witness blanket in 2012, which was made from objects from residential schools, government buildings, and cultural structures he gathered from 77 communities across the country. In virtual reality, sound is part of the experience, and audio allows people to explore the blanket in a new way, said Newman, renowned for his work as an artist, carver, and opera singer. If each of the objects on the witness blanket had a voice, what would they sound like? What language would they speak? What songs would they sing, he asks. One of the reasons the team wanted to add sound to the blanket is to provide another way for people to connect with something tangible, Newman said. The fact that modern technology makes digital sounds indistinguishable from the original source means high-quality recordings can be made by simply using a phone. One of the questions Newman's asked frequently is whether people can submit contemporary sounds. Absolutely, he said. We don't want to exclude people who have grown up in an urban environment. Culture exists all around us. We want to welcome all kinds of sounds without limitations. If an indigenous youth is involved in hip-hop, for example, maybe those sounds will come from them. The fact that people will be able to discover sounds by interacting with the blanket through touch and gestures adds another dimension as well, Newman said. Newman, McNally, and the Indigenous musicians are working on the project with Camosun Innovates, which connects applied learning and applied research, design thinking, interdisciplinary inquiry, productivity improvement, and tech-savvy invention. It's exciting and an honor to work on a project created by such a legacy, McNally said. The power of the witness blanket is evident from the way so many people have engaged with it. The creation of the virtual reality witness blanket will enable visitors to explore the project with a VR headset, making the experience accessible from coast to coast, said Camosun Innovates director Richard Gale. Rather than pulling out a drawer and looking at something in a museum, you can reach out and see what each object really looks like in your hand. Collecting sounds will augment the visual impact of the installation making it more personal and more influential on many levels, Gale says. Newman hopes participants will contribute auditory artifacts in a similar way to how objects were collected from residential schools for the original witness blanket. What makes the original witness blanket so special is that everyone brought their own idea, which expanded the range of stories we included, he says. People are invited to record and provide sound that can be woven into the virtual reality experience. Sounds for submissions may include the music of traditional instruments, the sounds of cultural activities such as paddling or carving, and the ambient tones of the natural world like rain or wind, as well as spoken languages, songs, or any other sounds associated with someone's indigenous culture or community. 
Partners for the project include Camosun College, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, and the University of Victoria. It is supported by contributions from the College and Community Social Innovation Fund, the Canada Council for the Arts, TELUS, and a multi-year grant from the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council College and Community Society Innovation Fund. Ryan Hunt is joining us on location live from Vancouver today. Thank you, Leah. After more than seven years of planning, development, and renovation, I'm reporting live from the opening of the Chinese Canadian Museum on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples in Vancouver, British Columbia. More than 300 guests, political representatives, and community partners have gathered here on the eve of the 100th anniversary of the signing of the 1923 Chinese Exclusion Act to celebrate this momentous opening. We go now live to board chair for the Chinese Canadian Museum, Grace Wong, with opening remarks. Canadian Museum is open to the public as of July 1st, 2023. Back to you, Leah. Thanks, Ryan. As always, it's been a pleasure to bring you the Muse News. I'm Leah. We'll be back next month with your Sector News Recap. <laughs>